This is the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz. Even with the lack of football this past week, there was not a lack of NFL news or even Seahawks news. Bobby Wagner held a press conference where he talked about his support for the protests following the death of George Floyd. Russell Wilson joined in later in the week to express his support and the need for change. After being asked how the NFL should respond if players kneel during the national anthem, Drew Brees received criticism when he said he will never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag, and that was followed by NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell saying the league was wrong for not listening to players earlier and to encourage everyone to speak out and peacefully protest. And with the the, the larger discussion in mind, I wanted to bring on Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic. Uh, he had a podcast earlier this week title of the episode, Legalized Blackness. He had that discussion with his co-host, Christopher Kidd, and I wanted to bring him on to talk about just this week of news with the Seahawks. And and because, Mike, it's uh, it, it's hard to talk actual football with everything going on, and really there's not a whole lot of football to talk anyway. Um, so I, I appreciate you coming on and, and having this discussion here. Oh, yeah, no, no problem. I have no interest in talking about football. <laughs> so let's, yeah. You know, I, I don't I don't have to. So let's not do it. Yeah, well, and that's really the message that we got from Bobby with his press conference last week. You know, he he was asked a couple football questions. And for those of us who sit through and listen in on the press conferences, you know, it was it was obvious that the discussion there was was not around football. And so any of the questions that came up, it, it just seemed very out of place, I guess, with the entire discussion of what Bobby was talking about. And I guess that was kind of the conversation that kicked off the week and uh, well, and even it went back to Dwayne Brown uh, talking immediately after the death of George Floyd. So it, uh, what was kind of your impression of and takeaways of, of what Bobby had to say coming out of that? I thought Bobby's message to the media specifically about narrative control was very, very important. Um, it's a conversation that's it was funny to see him have it uh, or make the point because I had have been having that conversation privately with some of my like, not Seahawks media, but like some of my friends who are in like cable t- TV or out there covering the protest, doing standups or taking photos or whatever, print people. Cause I'm trying to explain to them, especially my people who went to Wazoo, I understand the training that you, that you got, like that we were trained that if you go to a rally, there's black lives matter people on one side of the street and all lives matter people are blue lives on one side of the street. You're taught to talk to everyone quote everyone and not really take stance or something like that. I mean, that's, that's what we're taught Mm -hmm. like in journalism school. I understand that I got the same training, but I've, I've always kind of been naturally rebellious. And over the years I've been able to like formulate my thoughts on why that is nonsense as it pertains to this particular topic. Right. And then what Bobby was pointing to was like the looting and the rioting versus being peaceful. Right. We have the journalistic like freedom to, if you go downtown to cover a protest and they're burning Nordstrom and then there's other people over here, peacefully protesting and you know that if you focus on the Nordstrom thing or you give them equal time even mm-hmm. give the peaceful part one part of the uh, camera time and the Nordstrom part equal as well right you know the focus will be Nordstrom burning you just know you have to know that right as a journalist right you know that it's going to distract so you can you can you don't even have to don't put your camera on Nordstrom right maybe you you mentioned that it happened you named some businesses that were were were, were damaged in amid a peaceful protest right if otherwise if you play try to 50 50 or sensationalize a burning building which i understand buildings don't burn often i get the desire to sensationalize that happening but you have to know that that's that's not like up upholding like journalistic integrity that's you being like complicit in distorting the message right? and we don't necessarily view it that way but that's what i've been trying to tell 
some of my journalism friends, like you have control over what your audience needs to see. Especially, uh, you know, I'll make the sports analogy, right? I go to a game, I cover Seahawks, Packers, or whatever, and they get blown out. Seahawks get blown out. And Russell has a press conference. Pete Carroll has a press conference, right? But I only use quotes from Bobby, KJ, and Shaquille Griffin. Right, let's say I do that. Um, I'm deciding that my audience does not need to know what Russell said. I'm deciding that they do not need to know what Pete Carroll said. To do the same thing with what stats I choose to use and not use and what narrative I formed for why they lost the game. Maybe I don't blame it on the five turnovers Russ had. Maybe I blame it on the defense and don't even mention Russ's turnovers. I'm making the decision that my audience needs to know this is why they lost. And I know that sports versus like, you know, burning buildings and protests, but the concept is still applicable, I think. Right. As a, as a reporter, you are the one who is you, you have the ability to control what you want the readers to to take away from it. Bingo. Yeah. Like that's you have that, you know, so and I've been trying to preach that. And Bobby didn't go in depth as is that probably, you know, he's not a journalist, uh, but that's been my thought during all this. And we have that control and we need to be comfortable using it. I know some people don't have autonomy. You get these old crusty editors who've been there forever who are real old school. But damn, I stand up to that because you have a before you have any journalistic obligation, you're still a human being, too. And if you know what's wrong and what's right, you have you can do that. You have the power to highlight what is right. Uh, in this scenario, I think at least. So when Bobby said it, I thought it was very, very, very important. Well, you know, I, I kind of want to go back since you've kind of brought up the fact that you're in journalism. Uh, what what got you into journalism in the first place? Uh, I, re- I told my high school counselor I really wanted to be, uh, I was doing a summer program at the University of Washington. I went to Franklin High School, uh, like South Seattle. I told her I wanted to be a, uh, I wanted to be like Stephen A. Smith. I wanted to talk sports on TV and this is like 2009-ish too, so it's like him and Skip are like on are on the rise at the time. Um, so that, like that was the show to want to be on. And she was like, "Oh yeah, you should apply to UW, but you really should go to the Murrow School over at uh, in Pullman if that's what you want to do, broadcasting." That was a good call by her. So that's what I decided to do. And I didn't even get into journalism over there really um, until one day I was arguing with my English professor in freshman year about trying to get my grade raised or something like that. And somehow we got to talking about the divisional game against the the Saints uh, 49ers, divisional round in 2011, where Alex Smith runs that uh, like touchdown in uh, at the end of the game. I was talking about that, and we ended up going on this tangent. He was like, man, you know a lot about sports. You should like have like a column in the paper or something like that. Um, and I think it wasn't even until the next semester – that that was spring semester, so yeah, the next fall. So yeah, is when I really got into it and started covering like swimming or something. I can't even swim, and that was my first beat. <laughs> uh, and that that kind of got me into it. I was a sports editor my junior year, and then started writing for um, like Scout.com, the Coog site, Coog fan, uh, and basically kind of took off uh, from there. Uh, that was the goal to be like Stephen A. And then it kind of oh, that's right, I got out of I ditch the broadcast route because i was told i'd have to probably cut my hair uh <laughs> if i was going to be on tv and 20 or maybe 19 year old me was like no hell no that's not all right well, well broadcast is off the table if i'm gonna have to cut and that's that's how i got into print so did you grow up in the seattle area then yeah yeah i grew up uh south seattle right up the street from like rainer beach uh area went to African-American Academy that's up on Beacon Hill. It's not a 
it's not a school anymore. I think they use that for Van Assel Elementary or something like that now. But yeah, born and raised uh, Seattle. My, my dad was big C, uh, big Sonics guy. Would take us to get, take me to games as much as we could. Not not really a Mariners dude. Um, but yeah, my my grandparents had like season tickets like in the seventies to the Seahawks. Uh, they used to be like a little bus that would take everyone. I forget. I wish she. Ah, uh, dang. I wish I knew you were going to ask me that. I would have told you how much her season tickets were in like 1980. Oh, yeah. She remembers. Oh, they're like, it was dirt. It was like 60 bucks or something like that. I'm it sure was, it wasn't. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't a lot. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was super. When she told me, oh, it was unbelievable. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. My well, I mean, I even had season tickets in 90. It was the first year that Holmgren came in. So what was that? 99, I think. Yeah, I think so. And even then, I think. I think it was, and I had sec, I had two hundred level tickets, and I want to say it was maybe I think it was under five hundred bucks per ticket for. Oof. It might have even been less. It might have been six hundred for the pair. Oh my goodness! What a deal! <laughs> yeah, it, that I, is, I, I just remember it being pretty low. That is, oh man, yeah, I bought my dad tickets for his fiftieth birthday to that Seahawks Niners game in twenty eighteen. They got flexed out of primetime because Nick Mullins sucks. Um. <laughs> They were like five hundred and some change for two twos, and they weren't even that great of seats. Yeah, uh, but yeah, well, I thought it was gonna be prime time too. I feel like I should have got like a different rate if it was gonna be Nick Mullen. <laughs> like that's that's really unfair uh, to my my dad and my mom and and me as the buyer there. Like I bought prime time tickets for Seahawks Niners Sunday night, and you gave me Nick Mullins in like a twenty five point blowout or whatever. That was super unfair. So what was your first uh, Seattle sports experience, like live experience? Uh, I don't think I ever went to the Kingdome because I'm 27. So I'm born in 92. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Ooh, that's a good question. I'm pretty sure it's some Mariner game with my grandfather in the early Ichiro years, I want to say. But I, do, I don't really have great memories until the Sonics. Like I remember Ray... I remember having a uh, Desmond Mason poster in my room in the in the like the maroon Sonics jerseys. I remember being at a game and like being really close to Richard Lewis. Uh, man, those are memories. Um, that yeah. So what's that like? Two thousand four, five ish. Kind of kind of range there. Yeah, I didn't go to a Seahawks game until two thousand eleven. I was at Sherm's first start. Oh wow! Uh, okay. That that Bengals game where uh, man, there's a lot that goes on in that Bengals game. In hindsight, like. Brandon Browner body slams Jerome Simpson. Um, the Seahawks lose uh, to Dalton, who like no one really knew was great at the time. I mean, he's not, but like that was rookie Dalton, uh-huh. uh, rookie AJ Green, who ca- I think catches a touchdown maybe, and then like there's a he, Sherm picks him, right? I want to say or tips the ball to Cam, and Cam picks it, and while Cam is running the ball back, Sherm just starts hollering at AJ Green like during. The play and then calls AJ Green overrated uh, after the. This is Sherm's first start. Yeah, he called AJ Green a first round pick overrated in a game that they lost. <laughs> it was that was oh man, I didn't cover that game. I was, I was in the stands with my, with my dad, but that I've been looking back at that game. We should have known what Sherm was going to become right then and there when he was th- that dude in his first start in a the game they lost. Uh, called out AJ Green. That's a that's a good memory. I I I I feel like Sherman. You know the the real part where he came on the scene was the game against Brady, obviously, 
and uh, and so that one sticks out in my mind so much more. But yeah, I, I do remember him and and AJ Green getting into it for sure. Yeah, no, those type of games, like when you go back, I love like taking the moment, like you're talking about, like the you mad bro thing, and, and re- like, okay, where did that come from? Like, because these these things aren't just like birthed um, that in that moment. Yeah, like you don't premeditate those type of moments, but they subconsciously are, come from somewhere. Even like Earl Thomas's, you know, come get me. Right, like where does that come from? And you can just wake up that day and was like, I'm gonna go holler at Jerry real quick. Right. If you you can dig all, all the way back to what Earl like what Texas means to Earl. Right. He's like the only guy of that's uh you know, there's got the Seahawks alumni that kind of still lives here, Doug's still here, Cliff's still here, Mike Moe, Sidney Rice, all these guys are still here. Um Earl still lives in Texas. Right. He's like one of the Cam's still here. He's like one of the only ones that's he still loves them. So his brothers, but he, he's like one of the only ones that's still back where he is, you know, his hometown is. And it kind of speaks to how much Texas means to Earl. So it wasn't even like a cowboy thing or having a relationship with Des Bryant or even liking Jerry Jones or Jason Garrett. It was just like, you guys are Texas. You're Texas. I'm Texas. We belong together. I'm, I'm you know? painfully aware of the Texas thing with Earl because <laughs> I, I, I went to grad school in Oklahoma, so I, I have oh. that. I, it took me a while to come around on Earl, uh, just just with that with that in mind. Oh no! no. Oh, wow, that's uh, how, did, <laughs> how did how was how was uh, the, the rivalry at that time? Were you guys holding your own? Well, it was uh, so when I was on campus, it was when KD was actually no, it was I think it was the year before KD was at Texas. So when I was on campus, it was basketball season. So I wasn't there for any of the OU Texas football, uh, but I was there for the OU Texas basketball game. And so it was, it was Blake Griffin's older brother. And uh, I'm wondering, I'm trying to think of who was on Texas at that time, but it was, it was the biggest college basketball game that I've ever been to. And Mm. Oklahoma ended up pulling out the win uh, in Norman. And so that was, that was my, probably my most memorable college basketball experience. I've never been to an NBA game, but, uh, that, that college basketball game was, uh, that was big. Yeah. NBA, NBA games are something, something special, but yeah, in a college, when you get like some real deal hatred in like a college arena, <laughs> oh man, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's real. We only got it a little bit at Washington state. Uh, but when I was there, it was like Clay. My freshman year is Clay Thompson's final year, and we were super good. Oh man, like we held our own with K State that year. We smoked Gonzaga, um, which is crazy to say now, but we did. Um, we beat Isaiah Thomas's uh, UW team. Oh, it was it was beautiful. Yeah, I love NBA games too because just I think the players are better, so it makes for a better quality product. But when you get some real deal hatred in there, like some some some. <laughs> Some KU versus like basically anyone in the Big Twelve or something like that. KU Missouri or stuff like that. Like real deal hatred, you know, Duke Duke North Carolina. That stuff was great. Yeah, and I could I, I could definitely sense the difference because I think the first game I went to was OU versus Texas Tech, and yeah, it wasn't it was different <laughs> when Texas came to the building. Yeah, yeah, NBA games are like you get diehards, but you're also going to get a lot more corporate, you know, fans. Uh, in the building, where it's like the students are just like, I'm only here just because this is what I like live and breathe, right? There's nothing else to do in these towns anyway. <laughs> it's like, so I'm gonna go to this basketball game and just wild out. 
Well, Mike, we started to get into the discussion a little bit with your thoughts on Bobby Wagner. Let's take a break. We'll come back. And I want to get your thoughts on Russell Wilson, as well as some of the latest statements from Drew Brees and Roger Goodell. Let's do that coming up next. We touched a little bit on the Bobby Wagner press conference. I wanted to talk to you, though, about the Russell Wilson press conference because and I I think we haven't really seen quite anything from Bobby like what we saw in his press conference. But Russell, for sure, uh, we haven't seen him address kind of these broader issues, uh, societal type issues, you know, even even going back when Kaepernick was first taking the knee in 2016. Uh, you know, Russell, I, I felt like he stayed out of it for the most part, and and Bobby even too to an extent. But we we saw a different side of Russell here in this week's press conference. Yeah, and, and it's crazy to think about Russell the the difference between 2016 Russell on this topic um, and 2020 Russell because there is a difference. Um, like you can go read, I did go read actually Russell's like first comments on Kaepernick and protesting and this topic and. He sounded a lot like Drew Brees, what Drew Brees said the other day. Like it, it was very similar. It was like he understood what Colin was doing, whereas Drew, Drew didn't mention that explicitly at first. Um, he understood what Colin was doing, Russ, that is, um, but you know, talked about what the flag meant to him. I think he mentioned he had someone in the Marines in his family or Navy or something and said why he stands with his hand on his heart and stuff like that. It's very similar to Drew, which makes sense because that's like his role model. Um, and then just kind of moved on. But yeah, it was very, it was very... Uh, refreshing personally you know because russ is what i'm 27 year old black guy russ is 31 so i mean we're in the same generation for the most uh, four years old bobby's only two years older than me so uh i identify with those guys in a way i consider us peers more than like he's on this pedestal uh, you know i know he's a lot richer than me you know dinner would be on him if we go but we're peers so to see him be so vulnerable uh in that way was refreshing although i didn't forget that he was he wasn't seeing that tune so uh, that was, and that's why my first question to him was, "What has changed in since then?" He basically said nothing. But my theory is, and he talked a little bit about this in his statement uh, and in his press conference, that Russ is a dad. Mm-hmm. Something he was that is something he was not in 2016. Uh, he was in 2017 when Michael Bennett was sitting. Mm-hmm. He had Sienna at the time, and then he he was with Sierra, so he was doing the stepdad thing with with Baby Future at the time as well. But I think there's something about, A, watching a dude have his life taken um, and George Floyd. That's just that that's gutting for anyone. Uh, B, Russ has a son on the way. And I think for Russ to have a baby boy coming, you know, I don't have any kids. But like knowing what I know about Russ and my homies who have sons, it's just a different feeling there for men when you're about to have a son of your own and the third part is george floyd calling out for his parent you know before he dies so i think all of that kind of triggered a reaction for russ and a feeling there and emotions that we just hadn't hadn't seen i think it's all of those things put together like being the father about to already being the father stepfather to a son and then being the actual biological father to a son on the way or as you watch a man have his life taken and call out for his mother. I think that's all of that together is why we got that from from Russ. Not to say he didn't care about what's going on before in 2016 or 17, but like you watched, everyone who knows Russ knows that when he speaks with him, when a mic is hot, Russ speaks from the perspective of a brand. 
for the most part. Russ is a brand. Um, he quite literally has like a tagline that he says after every press conference. I don't believe he said it on Wednesday. No. Right. Like, because he was not speaking as Russell Wilson, the brand he was speaking as Russell Wilson, a black man. That's it. That was his only title that day. And it's the only title that really matters in this instance. And I'm glad that's kind of where he spoke from. I think people needed to hear that. They didn't need some like really polished statement about like love and unity and the, the cure to this is all love. And it's like, those things aren't wrong, but when you're, when you have the, the platform that Russ has, sometimes you just got to let it all down, let the guard down and, and be a man, be a black man in this instance. And it was really nice to see him do that. When you are talking about Russell Wilson, the brand, do you, do you also kind of attribute that to the fact that being tied in with Nike, if, you know, because that is with Nike being behind Kaepernick, is it now, is that now a brand message? Um, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure I would go that far. Uh, I would love to talk to some people in his camp or something about that. But he's tied to so many brands that it's just hard to keep up. Yeah. He's got like Alaska, he's got some water, he's got a juice company. He's got a, a, some like healthy food things that he's, that's he's using to donate to all these, uh, donate all these meals during COVID. He's got like Mercedes. I don't know if I said that, Alaska. He's all over the place with the, with the brands. So like, I don't know which one he's like got in mind at any time. Sure. I just know he like carries himself as one as himself. Like Russell is a, is a brand. A lot of guys do. Um, but the moments of vulnerability are really, really, really nice. Cause that's when like you're at your most powerful. Like that's a word Michael Bennett would use a lot when he was protesting here in Seattle. It's like, I'm being vulnerable right now. And I think people need to see that. And he's right. People did. Uh, you know, that's why he was naked on his book cover or at least didn't have a shirt, uh, in his book cover. Cause he was be- he wanted to see, this is, this is it. I'm, I'm giving you everything I got in its purest form. And Russ kind of did that, uh, as well. And again, that was, that was what we needed, uh, from Russ at this time. Well, and I, I think it, it is probably more of the, what you mentioned earlier too, with, uh, just being a dad and because he talked about it in his press conference too, that message that he got from his dad growing up as a kid and, and not, you know, putting his hands in his pockets. And that is something that, you know, I the only place that that ever entered into my mind, it was when I was in the Navy and you were getting trained on people to watch out for. And it was watching out for people with their hands in their pockets. And so to have that as my first experience with it and then now to hear Russ having to worry about that, you know, his dad have, telling him have to worry about that as a kid. That, uh, that's, I mean, that hit me. Yeah. I was just talking to one of my, my editors at the athletic who is white, um, about the talk. Um, cause that's what you're referring to. That's what Russ's dad had to have with him. And that's what most black parents have with their children. Um, the talk is really like, at a fundamental level, the fact that it even has to happen and does happen. And it's not like something we all group chat among black people and decide that we just know. Like we're, we just have, we, we grow up and have the knowledge to know I have to have the talk with uh, my child about this. And it really is like a how-to guide for survival. And parents vary on what age they do it. Uh, I would I'd probably, anytime your, your kid has to like get themselves home from school, uh, maybe whether that's walking or, you know, the bus or whatever, it's probably the time I would, I would go with it. And it's just, yeah, it's at its core, that is just a, that is probably when we would know that change is coming. I watched uh, Kaepernick's press conference in 2016, and someone asked him, how would you know when there's change? I think uh, that was the question. And I think 
there's several ways, but that one right there, when black people feel like they no longer have to have the talk with their children, then we'll be fine. That may take like generations, but that's like a good little barometer right there. We don't have to have the talk. You don't have to tell nine-year-olds that, you know, hey, no sudden movements or they'll kill you. Like that's, that's really, really scary to have to tell children. Does it feel like we're hitting an inflection point now, especially, and you can look at it through the perspective of the NFL because four years ago, Colin Kaepernick ended up being out of the league and Roger Goodell was not in the same position uh, as far as his words back then as he is now. And he came out this week and, you know, said that, you know, gave a lot of support toward athletes. We heard Pete Carroll saying this week that uh, that the public owes a tremendous amount to Kaepernick for his protests. So and then we saw with Drew Brees kind of with that same message that he had in 2016 and repeating that now and having so many teammates come out and say, dude, we've been, this is what we've been talking about. And four years later, if the message isn't getting through to you that this is about police brutality versus the flag, then what, what have we been talking about these last four years? Yeah, I think as it pertains to Pete and like Goodell, I don't, this may sound crazy. Well, not it won't sound crazy for Goodell, but it might for some Seahawks fan in terms of Pete. I just don't think the credibility is there necessarily when they make their statements. Like Pete has tweeted like Black Lives Matter twice in the last like four days or something like that. Um, but knowing kind of how their last interaction with Kaepernick went down, it's um, it's kind of hard to to take that like sincerely. And same with Goodell. Like, dude, you put in a rule to to ban you know protesting, so we don't we don't believe you, but. Um, I think the what points to like how powerful it is now, I think, is the player video that forced Goodell's hand. The players used their leverage in a way that they could have when Colin first kicked this off, uh, and they chose not to. Um, the only time anything similar happened was when everyone tried to use their leverage to, to flip the bird to the president in 2017. Um, but the way the players did that kind of speaks to what's changed. Here, like there was some big name players in that, and this is stuff Michael Bennett and Colin were saying in 2016 to 17. We need the quarterbacks, right? We need the stars to join. You see Patrick Mahomes in a video like that, uh, and there's something I think Saquon Barkley is. I think Zeke's in there. Odell's in there. There's so Michael Thomas, I believe, is in there. So there's just like so many powerful names, and they forced Goodell's hand. That speaks to it. Speaks to yeah, like you said, this being like the inflection point. Um, and from the NFL's perspective, outside of the NFL, just to see, like, I think Stone Cold Steve Austin was is, like, down with, like, Black Lives Matter. I, I saw him, like, wilding out on some way, like, Instagram or something. Um, Seth Rogen is just like, hey, if you're not down with Black Lives Matter, unfollow me. Don't watch my movies. Um, Taylor Swift put out, like, one of the strongest statements that you'll probably see. Even, like, Joe Burrow, who's a pretty young cat. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, I think, has said something. Uh, as well, the tech quarterback of Texas, I can't remember his last name. First name is Sam, though. Ellinger, maybe? Anyway, like, you're seeing those, like, you're seeing a lot of people who have, who would, like, when you would think have something to lose here and nothing to gain. Like, what does Taylor Swift have to gain, right? You would think. She has plenty to gain in my mind. But you would think, like, she's going to alienate a very large portion of her fan base. But she was like, screw it. It's, this, is, this is worth it. And I think seeing those examples are perhaps more powerful or, or illustrative than anything we're seeing from the NFL, aside from 
the uh, player video that forced Goodell's hand. Like the, the players have always have had leverage. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what people have been screaming about with protests and holdouts and the CBA. It's like if you guys get together, you guys are good. The owners cannot live without you. They're not going to put XFL players on the field. Trust us. Did you watch the XFL? You'll be fine. Right. <laughs> like, trust us. You know, people have been telling them that for a little bit, but they're they're not united. Now they are, and you see what they can do. I hope it stays this way for the players too. I hope they realize that if you you can force Goodell's hand, you really can. Like they can they can use the same energy to get Colin back in the league, for example. Like this this can be done. Well, it feels like this would be the start of it because you guys on your show uh, on the latest podcast, you're talking about what makes a, a good statement and what doesn't make a good statement. And I feel like with Goodell, I don't know if he if he heard your guys' show, uh, but yeah. you know he said he came out and said we were wrong. Yeah, no, Goodell, man, you could tell. Well, the the thing is with Goodell, it's credibility that he yeah, I, and I understand that too. But I, I think the credibility and that does go into the statement. But I I think this has to be a starting point, just like with the with Drew Brees. I think has been discussed on Twitter quite a bit is that. You know, his message is consistent from 2016 to 2020, so that produces a credibility issue. But then when he comes out with a statement and then he comes out with a video and then, you know, he responds to Trump, who was you know saying that Breeze shouldn't have backed down. I feel like he at least now has a basis to to move forward from. Yeah, no, Drew, uh, President Trump just put that on. Just gave him a, a fastball right up the middle to Drew Brees to like show like that he's really gets it, <laughs> you know, because you don't want to be agreeing with the president for the most part. Like generally speaking, if your argument is backed by Trump right now, your argument is probably not good. And it's not even like a political thing at that point. Like I just question Trump's intelligence more than anything. Right? He just doesn't sound like a smart, very smart dude to me. You know, he's like the first time in my life that I've ever felt like you know, I'm I could probably beat the president in chess. Right? Like I've I feel good in that. I don't even really know how to play that well. I know the rules and what pieces can move where. Like, I don't really know strategies, but I'm sure I'd beat him, right? So you really don't want to be on his side. Uh, so Drew did the right thing responding there. I think th- the reason Drew's had to put out so many statements, though, is part of it is credibility, and part of it is what we do when celebrities mess up or say something wrong. And they say, oh, this, you know, I, I apologize, I offended people, or along the lines of that doesn't reflect who I am now, yeah, you see that a lot when we dig up people's old tweets after they get like drafted or something, which sure. is stupid. We shouldn't do that. Um, but what we don't, or maybe do, even put out their old text messages. Yeah, yeah. The J- Jake Fromm uh, just got hit like that. What we don't do in those scenarios, though, when we dig up like tweets from 2010 for someone, right? Um, we don't. When they say, "Oh, you know, I was young and dumb. You know, I don't feel that way. You know, anymore. I've grown." Blah blah. blah. We don't ask how or why. Like, if you had some racist or sexist tweets in 2010 and you don't now, how did you change? What did you learn? Did you did you gain some new level of empathy? If so, what what kicked that off for you? You know, if you're genuine in it, you'll be able to explain. Like, I would love to hear what Drew learned from Malcolm or Michael Thomas or whoever else cussed him out in the last, like, 48 hours. You know, what did you learn from those guys specifically, you know, that, that offended them? Like, how do you – how – like, what knowledge did you gain? Because otherwise, you're just apologizing because you got cussed out by dudes who might beat you up when training camp starts. That's how do we figure out the difference there? Like, he probably is a nice guy, but with celebrities, there we don't do that enough. Yeah. Question like, oh, I don't feel that way, or you know, the the Patriots kicker that just got drafted that has like the, the I don't I think it's like a militia group or something, the tattoo. Oh right. So, yeah. Like, oh, you know, I didn't know what it means. 
Um, but that, you know, that doesn't rock with how I get down. Okay. Patriots kicker, dude. How, how, how so explain, you know, that's it. Do that. We don't do that. We just accept the apology, but it doesn't really mean much. If like you tell us you were young and dumb and then, Oh, you know, that's not me anymore. It's like, you got to explain why people, people, uh, you know how you become old and dumb. You start young and dumb, right? So there's just no natural progression from young and dumb to old and wise, right? You have to tell us what happened in between, or I'm just going to assume you're just old and dumb now. There's plenty of old, dumb people, too. So for we need to have that like explanation there, which is kind of what I was trying to get from Russ, to bring it back to his thing. Not to say that Russ was dumb in 2016. I would never say that. But clearly there was something that changed, right? And I would like to know what that is. I would like to ask Pete Carroll the same thing. You never tweeted Black Lives Matter to my knowledge when one of your own players told you that the police threatened to blow his head off, right? So what what has changed in the three years since right. for you to be rioting in this way that you are for the cause? Now, not, not to say he's not genuine totally, but until he answers that, that's what I mean by credibility. There. Like you had the opportunity. It was as close to you as it could possibly be. It was one of your own players. He's on YouTube, guns to his head. You can see it. I can tweet him a screen grab if he'd like. So it, it happened. And so he, none of those guys are really riding in this way. And that's where I mean why the Seahawks kind of lack in credibility, specifically Pete there. Because um, we haven't really had the opportunity to say, okay, Pete, what has changed? I'd love to hear his answer on that. Yeah, and I, I would love to have just a, a better picture of the time, too, of, of when they brought in Kaepernick and what some of the reasoning was for him not signing with the team ultimately if – you know, because he's in a position to where would he really come back to the NFL and play for the minimum salary? Like, is that just from uh, just from the um, the financial part of it? Like, does he deserve to come back for for the minimum? I mean, now that it's been three years, but, you know, he he went out at, you know, <laughs> with a pretty significant salary. Yeah, no, I think it, I, uh, it's uh, how can I phrase this? It is my understanding that he would gladly come back to the league, to any team, in any situation, for probably any dollar amount. Um, I mean, he also, I mean, that's not like some like super insightful information. He said it in November 2019. He said, I will interview with any team. You know, after his uh, workout in Georgia, he said, I will interview with any team. We're waiting for all 32 teams. He sent the footage of the workout to all 32 teams. Pete Carroll has watched some of it, at least. I'm pretty sure he's probably seen the whole thing at this point. So, yeah, no, I, I, I believe so. I, I'm very, very, very sure he would still sign with the team like today, you know, because in terms of the salary thing, no one even got to the salary point because salary, when you talk that, that's an offer. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're offering a job at that point. No one has offered a job. The Seahawks didn't in 2017. The Seahawks didn't in 2018. No team did after his workout uh, in last November. Uh, so, I mean, as much as like the salary would matter probably to some point, no one's even gotten that far. You know what I mean? Like it, imagine you keep going on these job interviews and people keep wondering how much you would take, but no one's even <laughs> talking salary with you. Right. Like, you know, and it, it's it, that's probably very frustrating on his part. It's like, why does everyone keep talking about how much money I want? No one has even asked me. <laughs> you know, no team has asked, hey, man, what would it take? Because that's an offer. Right. And he would just probably say whatever you got. <laughs> Well, and you it's know, not get, a very good negotiating position to to be in to say, well, I'll play for the minimum. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you don't, you know, you want to get your worth, but you, you got to at least get the offer yeah. at that point. You know, he hasn't gotten an offer. I, it's my understanding he would, if any team calls right now, whether, that, whether that's Seattle, whether they call him for a third time 
You know, if they call, I'm sure he would take the interview. He would come work out, and he would sign up to be Russ's backup and be the dude in waiting if something happens to Russ. Right? He wants a job. You know, he's still just an American. You know, a lot of us want jobs, <laughs> so he he's no different. And I think he's what 32. You know, like he 32 year old dude wants a job. You know, no one gives him one. Yeah. Now, if he was a running back, he'd be out of luck. But quarterbacks play for a long time. Oh yeah, no, no, no. There would be he wouldn't have a case there. I mean, Frank Gore and Adrian Peterson are throwing off the mask on that. Yeah. But no, once you get a certain, I mean, maybe Marshawn is as well, but. No, those two have thrown off the numbers. You hit a certain age in the in the NFL running backs, ain't no one gonna sign you. I mean, I this little off topic. I will contend that that is why Ray Rice didn't get back in the league. It no, wasn't too old. Yeah, it wasn't because of the video or anything. I mean, Joe Mixon's in the league right now. He's probably gonna get a contract extension. Yeah. Right? He's on camera breaking the girl's face, uh, which is like gross to do. Right? And Bengals are like, come on down, you know. And that's their prerogative. They could do that, uh, but. You know, with Ray, if he had been averaging like five yards of carry at the time instead of like three, um, then yeah, some team would shoot. The Seahawks probably would have brought him in. They called about AB. Alden Smith's coming back to the league to play for the Cowboys. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we don't care. We as a, I won't say we as a society. The NFL does not care about these issues as much as we think, man. If you can play they and you're not in jail, they will probably call at least your agent to see what's up. Right, the fact that any team called about AB uh, at any point last season shows you that. Like that dude was clearly off his rocker, clearly like uh, uh, unstable, like in, in the sense that he could just do anything. Not like he was like mentally like unfit. Just in that, like he could, you had to take his phone and make him like bunk up with Russ to make sure he didn't do anything wrong. And the Seahawks are probably willing to do that because he's that talented. Uh, so yeah, now it's t- people don't. I don't think they care about these issues as much. And I think because Collins out of the league, it shows you the one thing they do care about. And that's pissing off people that they perceive to be like anti-black. Well, this is one of the issues that I'm struggling with, Mike. And, you know, there's people that if if Kaepernick did come back to the Seahawks and I even see it now with some of the support that Pete Carroll has been showing to, to Kaepernick amongst people that I served in the military with and who believe who, who still believe that the protests during the anthem are disrespectful and it's not all military but i mean even after 4 years i'm still feeling that you know when when we have these conversations i don't know if there's anything i can say to help people change their mind at this point and you you serve so obviously you have a different you have a far more informed view than than i on I mean, this, it's in, but it I, is ingrained into you as i mean just even from the beginning that when the flag's there you know you stand at attention you and, I, and i've had this conversation with a, a buddy of mine too who didn't serve and you know he would he during the anthem you know he wouldn't take his hat off and i'm like dude why don't you take your hat off and he's like well i don't need to take my hat off to know that i love my country well, well it's well, for me. It's it, Drew. And people brought this up with the Drew Brees thing, right? I thought this was a great example. Drew Brees, like, it's like this is what the flag means to me. And my granddad's did this, and, and it's just. I think Shannon Sharp put it the right way. He was like, "Dude, I didn't know two dudes won World War Two or fought in World War Two, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't just your two grandparents or or whatever, right? Like, there was plenty of black people who had grandparents or dads who fought in that same war, who came back home and were treated like crap." Right? Why? Because they went over there and fought for a country that did not love them. And I, I, I mean that. They, they did not. Someone just told a story about this. I want to say it's Nate Burleson. 
told it on Good Morning Football. Um, who told the story? His dad was in the. Uh, I don't want to mess it up. His basically told the story about his dad serving, and I think the police killed his dad in San Francisco. Oh wow! Um, I'm pretty, pretty in a park. He was walking in a park, um, and he didn't go into details about the this the story there, but just said his his granddad or a family member he had died. Like it's up it's up on YouTube or Twitter. It's there if you guys search it. And it's just like there's plenty of stories like that. Michael Wilborn on ESPN told a similar story. I think he said his father or grandfather fought in the war. Came back and still had to sit in the back of the bus, right? And there were still restaurants they couldn't eat in. So, like, when people bring up, like, what the military means to them, it's just, like, it, that's selective as well, too. Because there's plenty of ways that, like, racism extended to the military as well. Especially in the time frame Drew's talking about. <laughs> like, it's, it's probably still the case now, but it was definitely was heavy back then. And to just be dismissive of the plight of those veterans is also the point, Drew. You're, miss, you're missing it. It's just not about you and your family and how you perceive America. Colin is telling you how we perceive this is is very different. You know, we perceive America as a different way. We started from black people, that is, started at a different base. Started off in chains and white people started off in privilege, right? So, of course, we're going to view America differently. You know, there was a point in America that my grandma lived through. My grandma's 75, right? There's a point where... Uh, for us to be on a podcast together right now, me and you, she's like, well, that's shoot. I can remember a time when that wouldn't be allowed. Right? Like, yeah. that's, a, that's the, we still have people alive who are in that. It's not that far removed. Um, so I, I think what a lot of people miss when they bring up the flag, the military, or whatever, yes, that's not the point. But also, it kind of it is too. Colin in 2016 said, I can't stand for a flag that's supposed to represent liberty and justice for everyone and is not, you know, holding up its end of the bargain. Right? He called for accountability for the country. And yeah, of course, that's going to piss some people off because they're like, well, what's wrong with the country? This has been great. Well, Jeff, great for you. You know what I mean? Because of how you came up. But there's two, there's, there's a different perspective here. And these people are in pain. And that's where kind of Drew got dismissive. Um, and basically all these you know, Fox News people and everything, and they got dismissive of it because they couldn't imagine an America that hasn't been great to them. Right. And it's just like, dude, where have you guys been? Read a book. There's a bunch of people it's not been great to. Like, and if you're an NFL player, it's like, psst, they're probably standing right next to you. Those are the people it hasn't been good to. Uh, and that, at its core, that is why Drew got the backlash he got. And that's why a lot of people don't want to get it. Because right? they can't imagine that America that hasn't been like great and been the land of the free when it was quite literally had like an enslaved population for like hundreds of years. Well, and I wonder too if that, you know, because during my time in the military, and that might it's, it could be different from people serving now. People serving now might actually be having those conversations with one another, whereas, you know, when I was in, I, I don't remember having any kinds of deeper discussions with regard to race, and we're you know side by side doing the same exact things, and and maybe just because not having that discussion, you just you don't have that perspective then that uh, necessarily. I, I, I'm just trying to work for that sure. Out. That's how you get like the Vic Fangio saying he doesn't see color, right? Sure. It's the same, it's the same idea in football, right? In his mind, in Vic's mind, if you're qualified, maybe he doesn't feel this anymore because he got some backlash too, yeah. but this is what he felt. He's like, look, if I'm a coach and I see this guy's white and he's a receiver and this guy's black and he's a receiver and one of them can run routes and the other one cannot, I'm going to start the other guy, right? Like that's just, he's kind of had that mindset, right? Our Washington state football coach, Nick Rolovich, posted something similar like he was like if you love the game of football and you've been around it 
you don't see color. It's like, well, Nick, that's stupid, right? But that is probably how he has seen it. Like, if he's got a white quarterback and a black quarterback, he's going to play the best guy. It reminds me of Denzel Washington and remember the Titans. The best player will play. Color won't matter. Like, that's dumb. It, it always matters, right? You have to see what struggles your black quarterback had to take as a dude just to even get to where he's at. You have to see that, right? But I can see how coaches are in a in case, like you said, the military, if, unless you have the conversation, unless someone maybe explains it to you, yeah, you're just, you're just like not thinking anything of it. Vic Fangio probably thought nothing of saying that there wasn't any racism or discrimination in the NFL. He, he probably genuinely was like, I haven't seen it. You know, you earn, you get what you earn in the NFL. No, I mean, that's, you work hard, you get it. Dabble Sweeney's probably the same way, but they're wrong. Right. And we need to explain to them why that is. And it's a very simple combo. Um, but it just takes having it. If you get if you get to being 40, 50, 60 and haven't had the convo, I actually do understand why you can perhaps struggle with the concept. Um, but when someone explains it to you once, though, you should get it at that point. And I don't, that's where I think Dabo and Vic just don't want to hear it. Uh, whereas there are some people, perhaps like Nick Rolovich, our coach, who legitimately probably hasn't heard it. Um, which is why he probably has he hasn't tweeted anything, I don't think, since his statement. I, I do have a hard time believing that for coaches, though, because we were just having this conversation two weeks ago when we were talking about incentivizing coaching hires, be, you know, trying to add more to the Rooney rule. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess that. Yeah, I, I should rephrase that a little bit. Vic's tripping. <laughs> you know, he's really tripping. I think I tweeted that as well. I, I think that was my point in his quote it was like dude you you have the nerve to say there's no discrimination in the nfl like that's that's what you're gonna say now like come on dude like you you can't have the blinders on that much right that that's that's ridiculous i understand living in like a white privilege bubble for all your life but like you've been in the nfl for a while to think that like, do you know why the Rooney Rule is? And I think that's another thing, too. We go to the Rooney Rule. I don't even think a lot of these guys know why it exists. I really don't think they, like, they understand what it is. And they could probably explain to you a, a line from the wiki page, right? But I don't think they, at it, at their core, know what it is. And I, and depending on the guy, I'd have to dig in the background to each coach. It's probably somewhere between, like, just, like, stupidity and, like, willful ignorance. It's one of... One of the two. It's probably more of the latter for a lot of these guys, but for some of them, probably is just like they just don't understand, which is scary because they're like in charge. But yeah, I th- yeah, I should. You're right. That's a good point. Vic, Vic's tripping. Dabo's college football is a little different because you can live in a bubble. But no, all these guys they are tripping to an extent um, because yeah, even if they don't want to get it, I'll say this. Not that someone hasn't explained it to them and they've like not listened. I don't think they want to understand because if you want to understand like the plight of people who don't look like you, Google is free. You know what I mean? And you're around people who don't look like you all the time in that sport. So you could do it. So I guess that's what I should say about those dudes. They haven't shown that they want to even care about it. Well, you guys ended your show with the idea of talking about what people can do to help make change. And I, I want to bring that up here, too, Mike. If uh, What can people do in your mind who want to make change and want something to do? I think the big thing is listening. Uh, I said that on the podcast as well. You got to listen. You got to listen. That's what people like Dabo and Vic and, and Drew Brees weren't doing. 
right? They weren't listening. And you see where not listening gets you. <laughs> it's not, not a great place, right? So you got to listen and understand and listen that when someone took, like there's a, most black people know that what hashtag two Americas means, right? There's just, there's just two, right? Like there's ours and then there's yours. Like we understand that the way we view things is different. You hear the talk and black people's growing up, we're talking about like the police talk. Yeah, the talk and like how white people grow up, it's probably about like the birds and the bees, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's just different. I mean, so you got to listen. It starts with listening. And once you understand and feel, it's then time to spread the word. And that's the some of the most important things that, that all white people can do right now. I know a lot of people want to reach out and tell, you know, tell me or whoever, black friends or coworkers, they got like, hey, Mike, I'm with you, solidarity, unity, love. I genuinely do mean this. I appreciate all of that. Now the next step is to go tell all of your white friends that same thing. Tell them you're rocking with Black Lives Matter. Tell them why not seeing color is stupid. Tell them why bringing up black-on-black crime is wildly insensitive at a time like this. Tell them why all lives matter is perhaps the worst retort to Black Lives Matter that you could possibly say. Um, There's another one in there. Oh, yeah, bringing up the fact that white people get killed by police too and perhaps at a higher rate, which one isn't true. Uh, but two is just besides the point uh, right now. Though it's it's having those conversations with uh, other people, whether it's the 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 MAGA friend you got from college on your Facebook wall, or your in laws, or your your grandparents, your brother, your siblings, whatever cousins, your spouse. Even I don't know if I want to break up any marriages, but I mean, shoot, if 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 saying you care about Black Lives Matter breaks up your marriage, and that's probably for the best, it's probably a net positive, I would imagine. Uh, so. That, those are the convos that people got to be willing to have next. And that's why we spend so much time on the podcast with it, because I know it's hard. Right? I know it's very hard to have those discussions with people you love because you don't want to sever those those ties. Right. You don't want to get into a big argument with your dad about Black Lives Matter. Right. You know, that's that's not necessarily one of the things you want to like get blocked by your dad via text for. I understand. But it's it's necessary because your dad can vote. With right. so much of this going on, too, I wonder with not having any sports going on, you know, is is this the time to have some of those? And I know they're going to be uncomfortable conversations, whether you have them now or later. But, man, with no sports going on, like this is the time. Yeah, no. And it's and it's is relevant. You know, it's topical in that, like you can it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for you to check in with your parent on a Sunday or whatever you, you do. And they say, yeah, wow, you guys seeing this stuff on the news? You know, it's just not like you got to bring it up out of nowhere. It's the only thing on TV. It's on ESPN. It's on CNN. It's probably on the cooking channel at some point. So it's there, there's really no way around it. And there's these smooth transitions to, to make it happen. I really think that that's I, I can't express enough. how I understand that that's a scary conversation to have and it's frustrating too like i a lot of my white friends are experiencing what i experience all the time in my mentions or something someone just says like uh i'll i'll insinuate that trump is racist right and then somebody will respond like how can you prove he's racist and then you're just like you stare at the message like what how much time do you have right and then they'll screenshot it send it to me like mike you see this and i'm like yeah no i, I get that a lot i'm used to it um it's very frustrating but you just got to keep going like imagine having to do that for years right that's what we're kind of going through i want people to be willing to do that go to bat for us in that way um and then obviously donate to um black lives matter has a fund uh if you're in seattle the pacific northwest uh bail fund you know we got a lot of protesters getting beat up and arrested 
Um, so that's a, a useful, you know, resource there. Um, there's that that's important too, but I think where we're really going to get some change is putting pressure on publicly, whether that's in these protests or via social media. Um, cause there's like a thread, maybe I can share it on Twitter of like all the things that protests have changed. Like I think Portland pulled police out of their schools. Minneapolis already pulled the police out of the public schools there. Um, I think LA is going to defund the police down there. Um, there's been a couple of Confederate statues are coming down across the country. Um, there's some stuff happening that you can attribute entirely to protesting right now. So that is how you can really affect change. And I really recommend those convos of people close to you because, like I said, those people can vote. Right? I know you don't want to argue with your best friends from high school. Arguing like, with people no. on social media generally doesn't work anyway. I, I, I like the idea of having the conversations with, with people who are close to you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really what it is because they they know where you're coming from. They know your background. Mm -hmm. They know if your best friend from high school knows you. They know that you guys used to agree and maybe laugh about some things or microaggressions that you later learned that were really insensitive and that are dangerous and can be fatal <laughs> as you get get older. Now you've changed, and she can understand or he can understand where you're coming from. Yeah, you're not going to change the MAGA buddies uh, Facebook uh, wall dude's mind. Probably not. You could. Um, but you got to learn how to walk away from those. But yeah, the convos with your people close to you, um, that are really going to change. Ain't, anybody who can vote, you should be willing to discuss with, to be honest, that's close to you. Cause that's where we're going to get some change too. Get some of these people out of office, out of these, you know, uh, city official spots and mayors and senators, get them up out of here. And so we can get some, get some change. And so that's what I would really recommend for anyone right now. And you talked about just listening to people too. I'm curious, who are some of the voices? Because you know, I used to think that we weren't living in really historic times at all, but this year has really changed my mind on that. So I'm kind of curious if who are we going to look back at, at the the person in our time to where we say, yeah, that was the Martin Luther King Jr. of, of our time. There's a there's a few. Well, Martin Luther King is tricky just because Martin Luther King was very disliked when he was assassinated. And I think that's something that's not really expressed enough. Um, he wasn't like this dude that like Mike Leach would quote, right? No, Mike Leach would have hated uh, <laughs> Martin Luther King in the 60s. I'm very sure of that. Um, so Colin is the best like comparison there because he's very disliked at the moment, probably the most dis disliked athlete in the world. Um, you could probably argue. Maybe there's some soccer player that's like everyone hates, uh, but I would go with Colin. And I think listening to him, just even – Honestly, read the transcript of his 2016 press conference at the in the 49ers locker room. I think it's preseason, August 28th. I think is the date, 27th maybe. Um, just read it. Read the read the, read the questions. One of the questions actually is, Colin, how can you say this in the company of uh, the country elected a black president twice, which is laughable. Um, but read it. Just just read. It. That's going to end up being like his letter from the Birmingham jail thing because it's just so precise and it's the answers are there. A lot of stuff people are talking about. The answers are are, are there. Colin, um, if people want to like some real intellectual people that I like listening to here, uh, Tanahisi Coates, um, author of Between the World and Me, uh, and We Were Eight Years in Power. Uh, I don't think he's at the Atlantic anymore, but he, he's someone. If you're just trying to get like the historical context for all of this, uh, if you want someone local, Jerry Brewer, uh, writing for the Washington Post now. Uh, the stuff he writes has been really, really powerful. Um, Jamel Hill at the Atlantic. Now, there's some of the people that have been saying this. Michael Bennett, 
I, I took, I fell into a rabbit hole last night cause I couldn't sleep mm. where I just watched some of Michael Bennett's press conferences from 2017. And I watched his CNN appearances and he was on his and hers. And he was all over the place explaining why he's protesting. And you could drop those. I tweeted one uh, this morning. I tweeted if, if you're silent, if you're silent right now, you're being dishonest about the truth. That's from his CNN interview in August, 2017. Michael Bennett was telling us a lot of this same stuff, which led frustrates me from the Seahawks point of view. It's like, you guys had a teammate telling you what the what the deal was here and you guys are just like ah okay that's just mike's issue like pete carroll called it his issue you know i'm i'm very disappointed in that it's not because carroll understands it now i heard him say it on the podcast with steve kirk right <laughs> you know I, I know he gets it now that's why i love to ask him what changed so yeah michael bennett has always been on the right side of history here eric reed has always been on the right side of history here um like there's those people that I named Joel Anderson, another writer, uh, Romani Jones. There's been a lot of people on the right side of history this entire time, and Colin's gonna be like the the big one, because um, man, there's just I mean, look at it now. Look at the difference in four years. Look how bad the NFL looks now. How dare they have put a a, a rule in to punish guys who protest during the anthem? And look how stupid that looks just two years later. Now imagine 20 years from now where there's like a statue of Kaepernick outside Levi's uh, and everyone else like the Lauren Ingram lady or like the Tommy Lauren chick. Just look, Clay Travis, don't listen to any of them. Uh, they're like the anti-Kaepernick. Uh, imagine how bad those people are going to look. Absolutely. Michael Shaw Dugar of The Athletic. Check out his latest podcast, Legalized Blackness, the Seahawks man-to-man podcast. Michael Shawn, really wanted to thank you for coming on and uh, chatting with me today. Oh, yeah. No, I appreciate it. This is, uh, this is the only thing that I really am really passionate about. You know, we can get to linebackers and draft picks and stuff like that later. This is, this is about humanity and the lives of people who look like me. And that's something we're talking about literally every day. Yeah, it's it's been hard to talk football and I've you know the the idea of trying to put together a podcast of, you know, who the Seahawks might need to cut next to to make cap space. It just it doesn't seem like the right time for that. No, no, unless you're talking about who they got to cut for cap. Right. That's, yeah, that that's it. But yeah, actually, thank you for having me on. 